soccer because American, Americans who didn't care about soccer now care because we were robbed and it's just wrong. <laughs> and my dispassionate opinion on it is we were robbed. It's an injustice and it was just wrong. But anyway, we use that so a little bit of that to, to set up a story we want to tell you today. The story we're going to tell you, we've, talked, we've called My Most Beautiful Game, and it's going to be about a game that was played in 1982 between France and Germany in the semifinals of the World Cup. And it was called My Most Beautiful Game after the game by a phenomenal player on the losing team. And what he said about it was the game had everything. It had an injustice, it had heartbreak, it had, it had victory, it, it had everything. And it did. When did this game Germany-France, which is always a volatile combination, and you'll see a brutal game, and you'll see a beautiful game. And you'll see a game that so certainly appears to be going one way, and then switches back the other way. And it illustrates the point we want to talk about this morning, which is life in the middle of the story. One of the key characters in this, and you'll hear him mentioned briefly, but he's one of the key characters. A, a German player named Karl-Heinz Rummenigge, at the end of his career, injured, had been a phenomenal goal scorer for them. Never a player with the greatest of touch on the ball, but he had a knack for getting it in the net. But he was injured. Captain of the team, captain's armband taken away because he's not even on the field. He's injected late, late in the game in what everybody thought was a desperation move, a non-event. It is one of the key things that turns the event of the game. Life in the middle of the story. France's winning streak meant they had to face opposition they all dreaded. History cannot be forgotten, uh, even many, many years later. There was an edge to that game. There was something about it because it was France, Germany. And it had uh, everything that a good film would have in. You know, it's got plot lines, it's got your heroes, it's got your villains. And I think it's the match which uh, has remained most graphically in the minds of the French people. Early goal by the Germans, the scores are leveled with a penalty from Platini. And it's at this point that the real drama begins. Harold Schumacher, the German goalkeeper, begins to take the game. Personally. He was very, very aggressive from the start. In a way, I think Schumacher reflected the mood of the German team when they played against France generally. He knew France were playing well and thought a bit of aggression would do the trick. Worse was to come. In the second half, French midfielder Gengini was replaced by Patrick Battiston. Battiston was to spend a mere 10 minutes on the pitch. Battily released Battiston, who went for it on his own. The German defence was out of position and Schumacher had to come out. He was clearly beaten. 
He couldn't get the ball, so he went for the player instead. Everyone saw it. Both the players and the fans saw what happened. But the referee didn't seem to notice a thing. The distraught French players run to the aid of their fallen teammate. Schumacher seems unconcerned. We thought that Patrick had a serious problem, a really serious problem, and we thought that the referee should do something, but he didn't. Although Batiston was knocked unconscious, lost teeth and had vertebrae broken, no penalty was awarded, no foul given, and Schumacher escapes without even a caution. Michel Hidalgo can't believe what has happened. We had been the victims of a grave injustice. The match reignited the old Franco-German antagonism that wasn't there before the start of the match. Schumacher remains unmoved, going as far as to taunt the French fans yet further. But the French team managed to regroup and push the game into extra time. Then a breakthrough comes from Marius Tressor. Six minutes later, Alain Jures makes a score, 3-1. Même si j'avais 10 ans, je me souviens le but d'Alain Jures. Even though I was only 10, I remember Alain Jures's goal. That's a really clear image for everyone, not only for French people, because I think that image went all the way around the world. Because he had an anger and a desire when he scored the goal. When his little arms did this, that's the image that comes out of that World Cup. When I scored our third goal and got the score to 3-1, you see the way I celebrated. You could see that all of us believed we were in the finals of the World Cup. Yet the champagne would have to wait for another day as France allowed the Germans back into the game. Four minutes after Jures had scored, Rummenegger for the Germans beat the French defence to bring the score to 3-2. The competition got very heated. The sun in Seville burns everything it touches, and the competition matched the heat that they're used to in Andalusia. At the same time, we felt the cold of Germany's calculating game. As a tiring French side desperately tried to hold on, Fischer leveled the score in the 108th minute. We continued a little bit to play, so... We should have been a little more calculating and put some thought into staying ahead. But that wasn't really our style. At full time, the score remains level. The only option, penalty shootout. Yeah, my favorite line, the whole thing. A three to one, we probably should have given more thought to staying ahead. <laughs> you think? That... Uh, game itself had a 
a storyline that just kept turning one way and the other. And the truth is, Germany's whole ride through the tournament had that kind of a storyline. Their first game in their group stages, they lost to Algeria 2-1. to one. Algeria um, was at that time a 1,000-to-1 shot to win the tournament. They lost, the German powerhouse. And then Germany won their next game. So in their final game of group stages, just to get out into the knockout phase, what they had to do is they had to beat Austria. And I don't know if you know, there is some sort of link between Germany and Austria. But they had to beat Austria by one or two goals. And then both teams went through. See, it used to be played where all the games happened one after the other. The previous game had been played. And so they already knew exactly what they had to do in the last game. So what happened was it was played ferociously for 10 minutes. Germany scored, and then for the next 80 minutes, nobody took a shot. They both knew they were through if nothing changed, so they didn't even attempt to score again. The ball was played around in the middle of the field the rest of the game. There was this incredible outrage. It's cheating. It's wrong. On Germany goes. As Germany makes its way now to the semifinal stage, their captain is on the bench. Their goalie is, I don't know, a thug. And in overtime, you you know how, if you don't like soccer, you know this particularly, how seldom goals are scored. It's extra time. And France has gone up three to one. This game is over. I was a German fan at the time because in 1982, the only way you could see soccer in America was on on this UHF channel. I know, you don't know what UHF is. This channel that showed Hello Bundesliga, which means the German big league, they scored, they showed one game a week in the German league. There's nobody else to root for. I don't even know who anybody else is. I have no internet. Germany, I'm going to root for Germany. Obviously, I actually know who their players are. So I'm thinking three to one, done. I mean, there's really no debate. It's done. Karl-Heinz Rummenigge comes on. The aging, injured striker. Okay, big deal. That's what you got? You know, I saw him you know, running onto the field, and I was like, yeah, it's not going to happen. He scores. The French look like they've lost everything at that point. You know, they are paralyzed. Germany scores again. It goes to penalties. The Germans win. Now, here's the storyline. The ups and the downs and the ends, the Germans are victorious. No, they still have to play the final, and they lose. They get completely outplayed by Italy and lose 3-1. to one. And here's the question. If you're going to define that tournament by a moment, what moment do you pick? Rumeniga coming on, Germany beating Algeria, the Germans and Austrians conspiring to both get through, the foul that the goalie puts on the French guy, the, the third goal, the penalty shootout, what? The truth is, if you were an individual in it, you stopped at any one of those moments and defined the tournament in that moment, you would have been wrong until the very end because you're in the middle of the tournament. You can't define anything in the middle of the tournament until it's done. We, as human beings who like resolution, right now, we're in the middle of the story. It's not at the end. We are somewhere in the middle. The problem is we don't like life to lack resolution. And so we attempt to define our lives in this moment. We attempt to define our lives in the middle of the story where, quite honestly, this moment only tells us what this moment's about. It does not tell us where our life is going. 
And the problem with that is if we define our life in this individual moment, we will likely be wrong and live poorly. For example, there are some of you today who are desperately hoping that your life is not defined by where it is today. Where your life has come to, where it sits now, you are desperately hoping your life doesn't get defined here. Because if it does, it has not ended where you hoped it would. And if you do define your life today by where you are, you will tend to live with a sense of hopelessness because you failed. Whatever it was that you dreamed and have not gotten, if you define your life today by that, you will live poorly because you'll already believe you have failed and hope will fleet away. On the other hand, some of you are desperately hoping you can define your life by this moment. At this point, you've sort of gotten to the top level you've been at so far. It's three to one. And so you're feeling pretty good and you're hoping. You're hoping life is defined by this moment because this moment's good. The problem is if you define your life by this moment, you're in the middle of the story. Pick up a book. Read halfway through. Tell me whether or not that moment is accurate for where the book's going to end. Never is. It's one piece along the way. And the tendency for most of us, I call this high school athlete syndrome. At 17, you win the championship, and now you've reached the height of your life, and so you attempt to cling to that moment for the rest of your life. Because I am a champion. When we try to cling to our glory, it fades quickly and we experience very little progress in our life. We like resolution. We want to know what this moment means. And so we often attempt to define our life by the current moment. Your life is not defined by this moment. You are, as much as you may not like this, you are in the middle of the story, and you don't know, quite honestly, where it's going to go. There's a part of that that's terrifying. Honestly, none of us us know what's going to happen a minute from now, five minutes from now, ten minutes from now. In the relationships we hold the most dear to us, none of us know what's going to happen. And that's fearful. And one of the things we do is we, we try to provide some way of, of marking where we are. You know, life can seem like a stream of consciousness. And so in some way we try to get a, a frame around it. And so we, we mark things like, like graduations and promotions. And that, that's all good. It does. It helps us to grab hold of things. But then we get to that dangerous place of defining life by our individual moments. It's one of the reasons why, quite honestly, most of us like sports, because you get an end. You know, sure, in the middle of the game you don't know, but by the end of the game, you got a, you got a result. You know who won and you know who lost. That's also why a lot of you don't like soccer, because you get to the end and you may not have a result. It's tied. You know, soccer's a lot more like life. It has less resolution. What was the foul on the US, that the U.S. player committed? I don't know. Uh, nobody's saying That feels a lot like life often feels. We don't get the answer that we want. Question is this. It's fine for me to say, hey, don't let yourself be defined by your moment. Don't let this moment define who you are. That's great. That sounds sounds lovely. However, actually doing that is a completely different thing. For example, if you're a parent, 
It is very easy for you to define your life in the current moment that's happening now, particularly if it's not going the way you want. You're locked into a battle. This is just theory. I mean, I've never actually experienced this. You're locked into a battle with one of your children. And in that moment, you feel like you must get it resolved a certain way, and it's not resolving. And you fear if you don't resolve it the right way, what it'll mean is you are a bad parent. You have screwed up your child for life. And something within you says, I must get this moment resolved a certain way, and I must do it now. And if I don't, my life is defined here. If you define your life by the individual moments of it, you will live poorly. You will either live clinging to what you have, fearful of trying anything new, or you will live without hope, believing the story has ended and it has ended like a Shakespearean tragedy, rather poorly. There is a different way to live. And what I want to talk to you about today is a passage out of a book in the Old Testament which shows us a different way to live and a different way to look at life live in the midst of individual moments. And it's a passage in... In, uh, called, uh, 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 in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet. He was a spokesman, so to speak, for God speaking to the people of Israel 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And I'll just be honest, it's not going very well at the moment. It, it's, it's, it's not the height. The, the uh, ancient Israel's kingdom had some real high moments. This was not one of them. They're about to be overwhelmed by a foreign power, which is much bigger and tougher than they are. They're about to be overwhelmed by them. And it's going to happen once, and then it's going to happen again. Injustice is running rampant through the culture. All the, all the boundaries, all the, all the strengths of the country appear to be falling away. They used to be wealthy. They used to feel righteous. They used to, and now it has all seemingly come apart. In the midst of that, Isaiah comes and he speaks a message of power to them about what's going to happen and about where hope might actually be found. And in the midst of that, there's this passage which quite honestly seems curious because he begins to speak about a person. I'm going to read it to you. I'm going to read the first several verses of it and, and see how it strikes you because this is how it struck me. This passage was one of the most important passages for me becoming a Christian because I had been told by someone that... Jesus had the answer for my life. He was going to forgive my sins. God loved me. All that sort of stuff. Uh, that sounds nice. And then I read the Gospels. As I read through them, I became utterly compelled by the person of Jesus. Utterly compelled. And um, I had a big question, though. Okay, this sounds pretty good. That there is a God over the world. That he actually knows me and cares about me that he wants a relationship with me, that he's seen the very worst of me and offers forgiveness, and that he wants to steer my life and bring me alive in ways that I never thought I could, that the beauty that seemed buried in me he wanted to unearth. This sounds pretty good. How do I know any of it's true? And then someone handed me a Bible and said, read this passage and tell me what it sounds like. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. 
Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was like a lamb led to the slaughter. And the sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who could speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. And I'm reading along of this, and I just finished reading the Gospels, and I said, well, uh, by the way, you have to know this. I didn't know anything about the Bible, so I had no idea when this was written, what this was about. I'm handed a Bible to read this. What is this? I said, this is an account of Jesus' Jesus's life, and it goes through the crucifixion, all that sort of stuff. And he said, yeah, that's, that's what I think, too. It was written 700 years before he was born. For me... That actually was a moment. For me, I thought, okay, this isn't... Nobody predicts that clearly and that carefully. A message seemingly out of nowhere to a country where things were not going very well says, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to send someone to earth. And he's going to take care of the deepest problem you have, a disconnection with God. And as it starts out, it does you know, it says that Jesus... And I'm going to put Jesus in there now. There's nothing about him that's all that impressive. Look at the story of Jesus. Before the final couple of years of his life, nobody knew who he was. He was just a guy. He was a guy relatively poor, lived in a country that was, had been dominated multiple times and was now being dominated by the Roman government. There was nothing impressive. Nothing, he was a carpenter, a fine profession, Nothing that suggested any level of impact. If you stop the story when Jesus is 28, okay. I mean, really, who stops the story there, looks at the life of Jesus and say, wow, this will change the world. He made a table. There's nothing. He's not rich. He's not powerful. He's not influential. He's not well-trained in terms of going beyond making tables, which is a lovely profession. I wish I could do it. But there's nothing that would suggest this. Oh, yeah, here, we can clearly see the story. At this mark in the story, this man will change the world. Nothing. Nothing to suggest that. And then, there's an ongoing message in the passage of something happening, which we begin to recognize in all the stories we've heard. We begin to recognize as Jesus on the cross. Surely he took our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. We all like sheep have gone astray and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. A message comes to a people who are in a bad situation. And this message doesn't seem to have any great power. So an indistinguishable guy is going to endure a bunch of pain. And what does this mean for us? And then the story goes on and it says, well, he was, he was taken away falsely. He was 
judge for things he had not done. He never spoke a word in his defense as people mocked him and tortured him and killed him. And he never said anything. And the truth is, we look at this story of Jesus and you read it. And if you read through the Gospels and you get to this point where Jesus is taken away and he's convicted and he's tried and and you're outraged because you realize here's this person who lived on earth without any level of advanced training. And he began to change the society around him. He cared for people. He walked into places nobody else would walk into. He cared for lepers. He healed people. He spoke messages of power and of truth and who created a following of people, of normal people, people in the margins who had never been a part of the political or religious elite. He created this incredibly powerful movement by caring about people. And then you see him at a political expediency taken away and made an example of. And everything within us, I don't know if this is all of humanity or simply Americans, we hate this sort of thing. You're watching a movie and the unjust thing happens and you're like, this is, this is just wrong. There's nothing that ever has felt more wrong than Jesus, the Son of God, coming to earth out of love for us, being falsely tried, convicted, tortured, and killed. So how's the story so far? An indeterminate, undistinguished start. A brief 15 minutes of fame. A brutal, tragic, and unjust death. How's the story look so far? And then the passage turns one more time. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him. It was God's design to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, a guilt offering is something that is a sacrifice in place of somebody else's guilt. And though the Lord makes him a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great And he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors. Again, you're reading this in 700 B.C. and, And this is what you're thinking. Okay, if I'm reading this story correctly, he dies and then it goes well. He dies and then... He will see the light of life and he's going to all sort of glory and offspring and he's going to do great things for people. Yeah. That's actually the story. Jesus dies. At this point, the story still is not going well. And then at the very last moment, the followers have scattered. It appears it could not be any worse. God brings a deliverance, a victory seemingly not out of nothing, out of despair. He raises it from the dead, and suddenly the greatest hope the world has ever known is now born. Because someone, the Son of God, has died to forgive us our sins and to give us what our hearts have always needed, a relationship with our Father in heaven. But the question is, If Jesus defined his life by the moments, how well does he live? How does he, at points, at points, people try to make him great. 
There is at points huge acclaim. There's a desire to push him forward, challenge the ruling elite, become the one in power. Somehow, he says no to that. Lest you think that's easy, most of us have not had that, but given a little bit of praise, we can easily push ourselves forward. Hey, it's the will of the people. Somehow, he's not able to, he's able to not give in to that. How about when his very closest people betray him? How does he not go into despair? How does he not go, look, the story has ended poorly. I'm, I'm cutting my losses. I'm moving on. I tried. But even those closest to me are walking away. So, hey, what's the, really, you're going to blame me now for walking away? How does he not do that? Oh, it's really easy. Oh, well, he's God. No, really. How does he walk on earth bear this? How does he do it? Because his life is not defined by the individual moments. He defines the individual moments by the greater purpose of his life. There is a a solid, anchored basis to his life. And based on that, he lives passionately in every moment because his life is not a roller coaster. Where if this goes poorly, it all goes down the tubes. If this goes well, I achieve what I've always wanted. His life is seen in a bigger sweep, a bigger arc. And that arc is quite simply this. He knows he is his father's in heaven. And he knows that relationship cannot be affected. And he knows that he has been sent for a specific purpose that will get accomplished 700 years before he comes. It's already written. In Hebrew, it's already written as if it's happened. So sure God is that he's going to produce this. It's already written. A guy came and did this. It's written as if it's already in the past tense because it will happen. And so Jesus places his life in a bigger picture, a bigger arc. And he has an anchor that guides him through every moment of his life. So, what does that mean for us? you got a moment right now. You'll have another moment very soon. You'll have moments tomorrow. You'll have moments next week. I can tell you, don't define yourself by your moments, but quite honestly, let's just cut to the chase. You will, and I will. How do we acknowledge that? How do we deal with the fact that we tend to invest too much of our identity and our value in what's happening right now and yet somehow live bigger than that? Because here's what will happen, really. If you have a relationship that you believe is what you've always wanted, is at the height, and you are defining your life by that relationship, then you will cling so tightly to that because you can't afford to lose it. You've already gotten it. If your life is defined by the relationship, you will squeeze it and you will hold it. And so when your husband does something that desperately needs to be confronted, you appease. Because if you tell the truth, what will happen? If you do what you ought to do, what will happen? No, I can't afford to lose this. This moment matters too much to me. And so I will act wrong. Because I don't want to lose it. You fear, if you want to know fear, have a child, seriously. Because then you realize I'm totally out of control. I've got, I feel so much more empathy for my parents since having children. You're totally out of control. 
I mean, it started with Jennifer and Anthony Coggins right at birth. They, they have topped me now with uh, Jennifer giving birth to the child while they're driving to the hospital. Anthony, could you pull over for a minute so I can have the baby, and then let's go on to the hospital. From the very mo- This is true, by the way. happened last week. From the very moment they now know <laughs> they can't control the life of their child. But you want to. You've got a child and you realize something's going if, to... If I don't control him right here or her right here, it's going to go out of... It's going to go poorly for them. And so you can clamp on them. I will make the rules so tight that they can't get into trouble. Try it. You see, if we define our life by our moments, we can't help but live poorly. Because each moment matters too much to us. And so we will desperately cling to some and desperately try to avoid others rather than live with this anchor below our life which allows us to live freely. The story of Jesus in its ups and downs and its shame and its glory provides something for us which actually gives us an anchor for our life. By his death for the many, he offers forgiveness to all which gives people a relationship with his Father in heaven that can't be lost. By his death for the many, an individual's acceptance of that, they are now placed into a broader arc where their life has purpose and has a place and it is not defined by this moment. It's defined by the whole story and it's defined by their connection with God. And so my life now actually has a foundation to it. And so as fearful as I might be in walking into a situation where I need to say something, it's the right thing to say, but I fear what will happen in that moment, I have an anchor below me. I have a perspective that's bigger. When life goes poorly, and it will, I can have a deeper and broader perspective. This is not the end of the story. I'm in the middle. Realize this, you are always in the middle of the story. I can have a broader perspective when life appears to go tragically wrong, and it will. There is a bigger story still to be told. Try picking up a book in the middle. It's never going that great. There's always a movement to a storyline. Pick up a book, read halfway through, and decide if you like where the person is at that point. Without an anchor, when you get those moments of success, you will cling to them so hard and they will become your idols because you simply cannot afford to lose them. If my life is defined by my moments and in my best moments I must keep because I might not get them again. When my life is anchored with a relationship with God that can't be lost, with a forgiveness that's already done and completed, with a purpose that calls me to live in the midst of life of people around me, I have the possibility of not being defined by my moment, but living passionately in the midst of them. I can look at the individual moments before me, and I don't have to be bound by fear. I can pour myself into them. I can take the risk that's the right risk. I can release things that need not to be held tightly. Because my life is not defined by that how, mo- how that moment goes. It's defined by my relationship with God that can't be lost. And then he sends me and calls me to live joyfully and passionately in every moment. Apart from the anchor, 
of a relationship with Christ, the saving grace of Christ that gives me something I cannot lose, quite honestly, you'll live fearfully, cautiously, or foolishly. With that as the basis for your life, you can live well. You are not defined by this moment, for good or for ill. You're defined by the saving grace of Christ, which frees you to live passionately in every moment of your life. So, if you're in here today and you have never found that anchor for your life, and you'll know it, nobody needs to convince you, it's not a formulaic answer, but you know that in the end you believe life depends completely on you. And you know that at the end there's nothing solid below there. And you know that for you, God is a vague notion or no notion at all. I challenge you to look at the writings that have impacted millions of people throughout generations and ask yourself the question, is there not the revelation there of somebody who came for you and who offers you a love that you cannot lose in order to give a foundation for your life that gives you solid, secure possibility of living passionately? If you want to know more about what that looks like, ask any of us about it. Grab one of these Naked the World Cup cards right in the back. I have no idea. I'd like to at least ask some questions. That's where I started. I have no idea. I'm going to at least explore it. Just see what I see. What I saw was a relationship with a God that, quite honestly, I'd be foolish to live without. For many of us who are followers of Jesus, let's just acknowledge that we define our life too much by the individual moments. That we define our lives too much by its glory and by its shame. And let's acknowledge the fact that it's not easy to live otherwise. That you'll continue to struggle with that. But there's a bigger picture. It is not that every cloud has a silver lining, because they don't. It is that you have a God who is relentlessly on your side. If the Lord had not been on our side, the flood would have engulfed us. But he is. God is relentlessly on your side. You experience a victory over definition by your moments when in the midst of that moments where you're being defined, even a small part of you goes, God is on my side. This moment does not define me. There's a bigger perspective. God, how do you call me to live in this moment? I pray this week, every one of us will feel released from the tyranny of being defined by our moments and instead, instead experience the freedom of the solid, consistent, and true anchor of Jesus Christ at the center of our lives. Let's pray. If you had not been on our side, our life would be a at the whim of its circumstances and its moments. Lord, thank you for your passionate pursuit of us, which gives us forgiveness that can't be lost, love that is solid and secure, and a grounding and an anchor for each moment of our life. I pray today we will experience freedom. Freedom to begin to live more truly out of our heart and less out of our fear and less out of our ego. 
May we experience that freedom that's only found in you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.